You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you are a guest, let me greet you and say it is absolutely wonderful to have you with us today. Uh, If we've not met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we hope that your experience will be encouraging. We hope that you will uh, experience really God. That's what we gather. We gather for him, and we hope that you will experience him today as we we worship together. We are in a series called, um, well, it's just the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, living each day with the end in view, which is kind of Uh, one of the big ideas in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're still uh, just in the second chapter. So we're going to be in this book for some time. We're going to take a little break uh, right after Easter and do a little mini-series, and then we'll be back into it. So uh, if you're if you're new to it, it's it's not too uh, it's not too early to jump in with us. I hope you brought your little uh, journal Bibles, or at least your book of Ecclesiastes journals. Uh, We also have more copies. We ran out maybe a couple times and got more copies of the book by David Gibson that we have out in the Resource Center um, that that really talks about this theme, Living Life Backward. Uh, We've never provided a book to go along with the series where I've had as many people tell me I'm reading that book and it's excellent. So um, you're grabbing me on Sundays. I've had people during the week tell me I'm reading this. It's fantastic. Uh, So uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed and I don't know that I have the authority to do this, but if you don't like the book, you buy it and don't like it, bring it back, we'll give you your money back. How about that? So uh, we're money back guarantees here. Um, so today I wanna to talk about the secret of enjoying life. The secret of enjoying life. And before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about where we've been, particularly where we were last week. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. He's a guy. Uh, His name is translated in English, it's translated the preacher or the teacher, uh, but uh, the Greek would be Ecclesiastes, uh, and it it means someone who gathers, so he's gathering people to teach them. Uh, The characteristics of his life and the description of his life really map onto Solomon, so we are assuming it's Solomon, uh, King David's son. And what he's been on, as we saw last week, he's been on this quest to find the meaning of life. What is our purpose? Where do we find, we just sang it, where do we find satisfaction and joy in our lives? And so he's the wisest person living in his day. And so he has sought to understand all of life. We saw last week he went on this quest applying his great brilliance to understand everything that happens under the sun, that is, in this age that we live in. And uh, he said, well, it's just impossible. I cannot grasp life. It's impossible to understand it all. It's like, it's like shepherding the wind, or we might say it's like chasing cats to figure it all out. It just doesn't add up. It's like your breath on a freezing day is what he says. Literally says it's breath. Life is breath. And, and by that he means it's short, like that breath on a freezing day. It's, it, it appears shortly and it's elusive. You can't grasp it and control it and manage it. And so he says that's life. And so then he pursued pleasure and he, he tried all kinds of pleasure. We looked at nine different pleasures last week he pursued. Uh, he said that he was really the greatest of his time. He was the wealthy of his, wealthiest of his time. 
Uh, Philip Ryken describes uh, what we read last week about Solomon to sort of modernize the experience. And he says this, wine, women, and song. The Solomon of Ecclesiastes had it all. Today, his face would be on the cover of Fortune magazine in the annual issue on the wealthiest people in the world. His home would be featured in a photo spread with Architectural Digest, the interior and the exterior, from his wine cellar to his lavish gardens. Pop stars would sing at his birthday parties. Supermodels would dangle from his arms. That, that is the description that Solomon provides of his search for pleasure, and yet he said at the end of the search, it's vanity. That means, it, it means breath. It's fleeting. It's, it's elusive. It's like chasing the wind. And so in today's passage, we're going to see he's going to return to wisdom again, but this time he's going to really ask the question, is it even worth living wisely? I mean, what is the street value of living wisely? Is there actually any gain to it? And so we're going to read the whole chapter, I mean the rest of the chapter, but we're going to read it in chunks. So we're going to start with verses 12 through 17 of Ecclesiastes 2. So let's listen to God's word to us through Ecclesiastes. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes after the king? So, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, uh, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all life, I mean, all will be, have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, if this is your first Sunday at Grace Church, welcome uh, to the joy of studying Ecclesiastes. Um, I, I do want to say to you, we're going to get the first ray of hope in the whole, bi- in the whole book so far. Uh, it'll come as the third point of the message. But here's what he says just now in this section. He's saying that wisdom... Wisdom can't protect us from death. There's a lot about death in this book. And he's saying wisdom can't protect us from death. He he examines wisdom and folly. And he says in verse 13 that I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. Folly, There's more gain in light than in darkness. So he says, okay, it is better to live a wise life than a foolish one. And he says there, there's more to be gained uh, in light than in darkness. Verse 14, the, the wise person has his eyes uh, in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. So he says, look, uh, between the two, I examine the two carefully. And between the two, wisdom's better. Because it's like being able to see in the light, and that's certainly better than bumping around in the dark, which is his description of the foolish life. The wise can see where he's going. So it's better to be a wise person than a fool, sort of. 
It's better to be a wise person than a fool, sort of, because he realizes that ultimately the wise and the fool, as he says in verse 14, experience the same end. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. So whether you're wise or whether you're foolish, the same thing is going to happen to you. What is that thing? Well, verse 16, he says at the end of verse 16, he says, how the wise die just like the fool. So no matter how wisely you live, he says, your end will be the same as the foolish person. And what we realize here is that the preacher's greatest problem, his greatest struggle is not that life doesn't add up. His greatest struggle is not that it's elusive, I can't grab a hold of it. His greatest problem is not that, wow, life is fleeting. His greatest problem is death. That's the one he realizes he cannot overcome. So he says the advantages of wisdom, well, they're temporary. You'll die and your wisdom will die with you. And worse than that, we've already seen this, no one will remember you. Verse 16, for the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Have you ever walked through a cemetery, especially an older cemetery? If you just walk through an older cemetery, you realize that the people there are forgotten. Now, I'm talking about if, they, if they're relatives, if they've been gone a long time. And you cannot distinguish the wise from the foolish person because they all ended up the same way. And so when he realizes this, that we're all going to die, what does he say? Well, in verse 17, this is what he says, so I hated life. He becomes grieved by his very existence. And he says, everything is just a striving after wind. He realizes that his pursuit of wisdom has ultimately really done him no good because we all die, so what's the point? And so he hates life, he says. In the next verse, which we're about to read, he says, I hated all my toil. He hates life. Now, if you're new to the Bible, and this is the, we're reading, this is the Bible, it, it may be surprising to you that there's that kind of language. I mean, we almost want to ask, is it okay to talk that way? Because we live in a world where we got to all put on our happy face at church. Uh, you know, we've got to be acting like we have it all together. Most of us just aren't going to walk in and say, hey, how's it going? I hate life. Most people aren't leading with that. It, at least you're probably not going to serve in our Connect Center greeting guests today. Um, you know, we're not putting you there. We've got another spot for you. Uh, it's in the prayer room. Uh, but, but is it okay to talk that way? And if you're new to the Bible, here's what I want you to know. There are a number of places in the Bible where this language is used. For instance, Job, which is also wisdom literature, he suffered more than anyone. And Job said, I curse. He actually curses the day of his birth. David says, particularly in places like Psalm 77, that he is in despair of life. Now, is it okay to talk like that? Well, notice, first of all, in this case, in Ecclesiastes, he doesn't say he hates God. He said he hates life, and though God gives us life, I, I think there's still a, a difference. There's some difference between the two. Uh, and other people speak this way as well, and both David and Job and Ecclesiastes, presumably, are righteous people, 
So how is it that they are speaking like this? I think if you read the Psalms, here's what you'll learn, is that honest communication about where we are in life, especially to God, it's the mark of maturity. It's not the mark of immaturity. The mark of immaturity is fake it till you make it. That's the mark of immaturity. That, that, is, that is called hypocrisy. And Jesus has strong words for hypocrites. So, we, so live, acknowledging our reality is a sign of a relationship. If you have a good relationship with someone, uh, then you can be yourself and you can say, here's, here's where I am. And, and so honest communication to God particularly Honest communication to God about where we are is a sign of a relationship. And it's also a sign of communicating our need. I understand that Ecclesiastes is not praying here when he says this, as the Psalms are. But, but we, we should speak honestly to God. And we should have some, somebody in our life, some Christian, where we can speak honestly to them as well. I don't think this language is just you say it all the time to everybody. But there is, there, we need trusted relationships, trusted friendships, where someone, where we can communicate where we are. We can communicate the days we hate life, and we can say that. Or for him, the seasons we hate life. Or for him, presumably older in life, looking back over his whole life and coming to the realization, I hate the whole thing. And so we need to be able to have someone like that. We should speak honestly to God, and we should seek his help. But ultimately, his point nonetheless remains that wisdom cannot protect us from death. The second point he makes is that wisdom can't protect our accomplishments. Wisdom can't protect all that we've done or all that we've built. So let's read verses 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, <clears throat> seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So, Ecclesiastes ends up hating his toil because he realizes all of this work that I have sought to establish and build for myself, we saw that he said in the, last, uh, uh, the previous section last week, that I'll have to leave it all to someone else. And his great consternation is that he doesn't know if the person he leaves it to or who gets all of his stuff and all that he's built, if they will be wise or if they will be foolish. And so in this text, you can feel his angst. He's saying, I applied my heart. I applied my heart to wisdom, and I worked hard, and now there's no guarantee that my work will be preserved. There's no guarantee. We work all of our lives for something that we cannot keep, is what he's saying. 
and we want our work to last. We want what we establish, we want our, the relationships that we've had and the investments that we've made of our time and our talents and our treasure. We, we want it all to last. We want our work to continue after us. Woody Allen once said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. And that is probably the only way to be able to oversee your work is by not dying. But he's already made the point that's not going to happen. And so none of us achieve mortality through our work. It's vanity, he says. That means it's breath. It's, it's empty. It's fleeting. When he considers this unpredictable legacy, it causes him to despair. Verse 20. So I turned up and gave my heart up to despair. What, what, an, what a statement, right? I just love the honesty here. The Bible is way more honest than most modern evangelical Christians. It's really honest. He's just telling it like it is. I, when I realized all this effort and it could just be squandered, I actually gave my heart up to despair because perhaps that was easier than just to despair than to wrestle with the thinking of it all. He says it's not only vanity and it's emptiness. In verse 21, he says that the person that comes after me, they could ruin all of this. And he says, that's just evil, he says in verse 21. It's a great evil. And if we read the Bible in 1 Kings, you'll find out that what he feared actually comes to pass. His son, Rehoboam, will oversee the dividing of the kingdom. The 12 tribes of Israel will split and Rehoboam will effectively lose 80% of his dad's kingdom. He'll lose 80% of it. What he fears actually happens in real life. We all want what we do to last, yet there's no control over when we're gone. And he's so discouraged by that that in verses 22 and 23 we read verses that are dark. These, these are the most depressing verses that we've read so far in the book. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. He's saying all the toil. Now, sometimes we think about toil. We can think about physical labor. Some of, the, some of us in the room, we work in physical labor for our jobs or in the trades or something like that. So some of us do physical hard labor. And sometimes we think toil, that that, that has got to be back-breaking, sweaty work. But you notice, and it is, but you notice that he says here as well that it's also verse 22, what does man gain for his toil and striving of heart? So oftentimes the toil of life is not just the difficult things that are physically difficult, but they're the heart things. They're the relationship that we invest in that ends. They're the hopes and dreams that, that don't happen. They're the daily pressures of deadlines and evaluations and expectations at work. It's that stress. It's that Sunday night angst that begins to set in on you when you're planning for work or school Monday morning. There's that striving of heart, stress, 
is what we call it. And many people's lives are cut short more from stress than their bodies just breaking down from physical labor. It's this kind of thing. It's this striving of heart. It's this investment in our souls into all that we're seeking to accomplish in life. He describes this work, physical and in his heart, as vexation. That word means frustration. All this striving is a frustration. It's it's annoying. And you know what it leads to? It leads him to insomnia. He actually says, even in the night, the person who gives themselves to all this hard work, even in the night, his heart does not rest. You ever wake up at night and can't sleep because of what's on your mind? You can look around. It's a person nodding off right now. That, that happened to them last night. Or, they, or they've got a baby, one of, one of the two. God bless you if you're here. If you were up last night with a baby, if there's room around you, just stretch out and get a nap. It's okay. Um, God loves you. This is the day of rest, and you can, you, can, uh, you can watch it online or listen to the podcast later. But if you've ever had that where you wake up at night and it's just instantly it's on your mind, the meeting tomorrow, the conversation with your parent or your sibling that's coming tomorrow, uh, the, the report that's due to your, to your boss, uh, the, the challenge that you're having with your teenager, and it just wakes you up at night resting on you. That's what he says. That, that's, that's what life is like. It's a striving after wind. We all die with no control over what's going to happen to what we've built. And in the meantime, it's, it's vexation. And so I hate it, is what he says. There's an old movie, and the older I get, I didn't realize it was this old. I looked it up. There's an old movie called City Slickers. If you're young, you would have never seen it. But if you're old, some, some of the older people have seen it, obviously. And it's a movie uh, with Billy Crystal where he plays this guy that's just turned 39. He lives with all the stress of life in New York, and his, his, his life is empty. Uh, he's just, uh, you know, crammed on the subway. He's just a, kind of a number uh, at work. And his friends, they, they're at the same place. They're all kind of hitting midlife. It's sort of getting a midlife crisis or a little pre-midlife crisis perhaps. And so they all have broken relationships with these friends and all these these problems. And so they find, they, they decide we need to get back to really life. We're just in, we're just going through the motions. We need to get life. And so one of the guys says, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll go on a two week cattle drive. And uh, these New York guys, you know, and so we'll go on this cattle drive and get back to basics and we'll find really the meaning of life. And when they get out there, they, they encounter in part the toughest man they've ever met. It's Jack Palance. And uh, he actually won, a, won an Academy Award for his role, uh, playing the old cowboys described as just leathery. Uh, Billy Crystal said he's just like a saddlebag with eyes. He's just a tough, <laughs> leathery guy. And so there's this one scene where they're riding, just Billy Crystal trying to figure out life, and this sage, older, tough guy uh, who's a cattle, a, a, you know, a, a cowboy. And uh, he's got the cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he's talking to Billy Crystal, and he looks over at him. He says, you know what? You know what the secret to life is? Billy Crystal's wide-eyed. No, no, what is it? And he goes this. Billy Crystal says, your finger? It's the meaning of life. And he says, no, it's one thing. One thing. And Billy Crystal says, well, what's the one thing? And with his cigarette dangling out of his mouth, he says, that's what you've got to figure out. 
there's one thing. And after all of this deep despair, Solomon is about to tell us the one thing, the secret of enjoying life. This is the third point, the secret of enjoying life. And he's going to tell us that one thing. We've been striving to find meaning like Crystal's character was in the movie. We've been striving to, uh, he's been striving to search out and to find and to experience life. And here's the one thing, verses 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And so after all of these bleak verses, we now get the first ray of hope. It's only the second time God's been mentioned in the whole book. But we get this ray of hope that nothing is better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in our daily toil. After all the vanity, all of the striving after wind, he now reveals this reality, that you can enjoy life. That there is a joy and an enjoyment in life. The preacher has chased meaning and joy in every possible way. He's pursued wisdom. He's pursued pleasure. uh, He's pursued building estates and gardens. He's enjoyed nature and music and sex and love and power. And he pursued every one of them with great passion. Yet he says joy is found in the simplest things in life when we acknowledge their gifts from the hand of God. Martin Luther said that the, 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 the um, reformer, Martin Luther, said that these verses are the point of the whole book. He said these verses, they affect everything we've read before and everything we're going to read in the rest of the book. That after all of his searching, he realizes the good life is way more simple than any of us realize. It's to eat, it's to drink, it's to enjoy your work by realizing that all of this comes from the hand of God. He has pursued all of these avenues, all of these pursuits of wisdom and pleasure without any reference to God. And now he says, it was right there in front of me. What I was longing for and hoping for was right there in front of me. It was the stuff of life with a vision of God. And and even the enjoyment of those gifts is a gift. So it's not just that all of life is a gift. The ability to enjoy the gifts, well, that's a gift as well. Here's a way to think about what he's saying for your life. Here's a a saying over life. Batteries not included. That's what he's saying here. You ever give a gift to your child or your niece or nephew or grandchild and you're all excited about this gift and you you give them the gift and they open it up and they say, oh, it needs batteries. And you're, oh, what size? Oh, we don't have those batteries. And so now 
the poor little kid is holding this little piece of plastic thing that will not talk or will not light up or will not walk or whatever it does, will not shoot. Will not, it won't work because the batteries weren't included. And we found out that we needed batteries. Solomon had all the toys. He had everything, but he didn't have the batteries. There was no way to enjoy them because the only way to enjoy all the stuff that God provides is by the very gift of God himself. He found out that the batteries come separately and that's true for all of us. We have all kinds of gifts all around us. We have friends and family. We have our church relationships. We have work and hobbies and food and drink, entertainment and recreation, possessions, housing, transportation, food, art, love, sex, on and on. There are all these gifts from God, but the ability to enjoy them is a gift itself. Here's what Ecclesiastes did. He wrongly pursued the gifts themselves to gain joy for himself. He pursued all the stuff thinking that in the pursuit of stuff there would be gain, there would be enjoyment for himself, but it's only when we realize that life is gift and not gain that we can begin to appreciate and enjoy the things God has provided. That's the big lesson, that it's not complicated. The pathway to joy is not complicated. It's actually very simple. It's the pathway of grace is what he says. It's not the pathway of being the smartest woman in the room. It's not the pathway of being the guy that has all the stuff and all the experiences. It's seeing God in all of life. That's where joy comes from. And yet we chase a thousand different things, don't we? And it was always right there in front of us. In the book that we have out there by David Gibson, this is a quote. This is what he says. He says, some say eat, drink, and be merry because that's all there is. That's nihilism. That's hopelessness. The preacher says eat, drink, and be merry because that's what there is. God has given the good things of this world to us, and they are their own reward. When we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, that reality can stop us expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. I love that language. We, rather than grabbing the gifts for gain, we seek to see God's hand and live in the gifts a little bit to see the hand of God in them. When Solomon pursued all the pleasures of life, as a human experiment, he found that getting joy from those things was elusive. That's what he kept saying. It's vanity. It means it's elusive. When he sought houses and, uh, uh, and music and the arts and nature, 
power, silver and gold, he said, when he sought all those things, they were elusive. It was like meaning and purpose was just slipping through his hands. He'd grab onto something, but he couldn't. The meaning, the joy he was looking for just slipped through his hands. But when we receive all things from the hand of God, is what he says here, verse uh, 24, I saw that this is the hand of God for who uh, for apart from him, who can eat or drink and have enjoyment? See, the reality is when we see with a different perspective, oftentimes the same things bring great joy to one person and they bring despair to another because the person's hoping that that is what they've been missing rather than God. So you can work the same joy, uh, the same uh, job and have two different experiences. You can eat the same meal, maybe a special meal, a fine steak, and have two different experiences. You can drink a glass of wine with it and have two different experiences. Those are the kinds of things he sought after, great food and drink, and have two different experiences. If you were chasing it, hoping that that experience of work or food and drink, if you're trying to leverage that somehow to give you a sense of meaning or accomplishment or joy or purpose or something, if you're looking for something from that thing, you will wind up empty. But if you're able to step back and say, what a good God. Look what God has given me to do on Monday morning. Look what God has put on our table. Look at the company and fellowship with others in this moment of hospitality or with our family. Look at this moment and see that and and thanking God for his provision and asking him to give us joy in it all. We aren't to chase pleasure to find joy and meaning in pleasure. It's like trying to grab your breath on a freezing day. Philip Ryken said, no one can ever find any true joy in anything apart from him. Actually, Ecclesiastes said that. If we are deeply dissatisfied, this could be the reason. We have been taking good things and making them ultimate things when in fact they are God-given things. If you make your job the ultimate source of if I accomplish something here, if I'm good on my job, if I matter at work, then I matter. You're taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. If you're looking into your, a relationship or you're hoping for a relationship or you've just begun a relationship and you're saying, if this works out, then she will complete me, complete me. he will make me happy, then you are grasping that relationship for your meaning and you will wind up empty-handed. Here's the point. We must receive things and use things as God intended Gifts are to point us to the giver. Gifts are to cause us to celebrate the one who gave them to us. So we are to enjoy what he provides by looking to him rather than trying to find ultimate purpose and joy and meaning in those things. When I was in college, I uh, served as an intern. We have interns at the church here. I served as an intern at a church in the college ministry. And... Um, one summer, they gave me the responsibility to kind of oversee the events of the summer. We had a lot of college kids, and so we're going to do events. And so I was sort of in charge of them. And uh, that experience is why the elders will never allow me to be in charge of an event at this church because we were going to have this pool party. So we rented this pool at an apartment complex where a lot of students lived. 
and uh, we're going to have this pool party, but I thought we can't have a pool party. We've got to have something fun with it. So I heard of this game, which sounded great, and it's just you get everybody in the pool and you divide up into two teams, and then you get a watermelon and you grease the watermelon. And I don't know how we greased it. Maybe we you know, put Crisco on it or I don't know what it was, but w- you get it as slick as possible. And then you put the watermelon in the pool and the two teams come after the watermelon. You're trying to grab it and pass it to your teammate. The goal is to get it to the other side, out of the pool on the other side. So it's a game where rather than using a ball, that a ball might be made for that purpose, uh, you use a greased watermelon. So I got a big watermelon greased it all up, got it out there, and, well, what happened is people start punching, you know, just hitting, punching, and going forward and grabbing, and at one point in the rented swimming pool, the watermelon explodes. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but all the contents just empty into the water. There's just all this red, it looks like somebody got cut and bleeding. It's all this red watermelon throughout the pool. And, and I, I realized that day that, you know, a watermelon makes a very poor substitute for a ball. A watermelon makes a great refreshing retreat. I mean, I'm sorry, a great refreshing treat at a summer cookout. If you're eating the watermelon, the purpose for which it was created, it is a joy. But if you misuse it, it is a mess and you're probably not getting your deposit back (laughs) on the rental. A spouse, money, achievement, sex, they make a very poor source of fulfillment because that's not what they were given for. Don't use them for that. But your work, art, achievement, a relationship can be a wonderful gift from God to be enjoyed as we worship the giver and not the gift. There's a New Testament version of what Solomon's talking about here. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17, and it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich in this present age, well, that's us. In, historically or on a world scale, this is the rich of the world. We're here. And he's saying, don't put your hopes in the uncertainty of what you have, but put your hopes in God because God richly provides everything that he gives us, whatever he gives us, to enjoy. Sometimes the way that is enjoyed is by giving or sharing giving away. Sometimes it's just using it, but thanking God and recognizing Him in it all. Well, how do we apply this passage? I think it's a bit of a challenge because I think it just requires a reorientation of how we look at all of life. For most of us, it means an absolute change of how we view everything in our daily life. It's a reorientation that happens in a thousand moments and a thousand decisions that occur between our meetings together here on Sundays. For most of us, I think it starts with asking God to give us a new way of thinking and then to apply that thinking for the rest of our day. It starts with thinking God's thoughts and looking 
to what he has provided and asking him to give us grace to enjoy what he has provided rather than to pursue our joy in other avenues. Here's a helpful illustration about a father and a child. Zach Eswine writes this about this passage that just talks about the different way of applying this. He says, a toddler asks an important man who happens to be the toddler's dad to go to the park. The important man has important things on his important mind. Riding a bike to the park, sliding down slides, playing tag beneath the monkey bars, and playfully soaking their heads with a water fountain, and getting food together afterwards seems like a waste of important time. The important man either does not take the time, or he does so unhappily out of obligation, his mind elsewhere, and no sense of God the moment. But the preacher's words are a gracious provision from God for the important man. The important man begins to pray for seemingly unimportant things. He prays that God would empower him to slide on a slide, to play tag, to listen and hear his son, and to splash fountain water on each other. The grace of wisdom begins to open all of the windows in his life. Think about that phrase. The grace of God, the grace of wisdom, allows him to open all the windows of his life. Every little thing in his lot is becoming a means of potential joy and fellowship that God can give amid the stresses and frustrations under the sun. His wife, his work, his food, his place, all become something to pray for the empowerment of God's joy in them. Consequently, when someone walks into his house, he provides them food and drink, less and less for appearances or for approval, and more and more because food and drink were meant for human joy in God. He sits at his table with his guests and learns by the grace of wisdom to say amid all the harming things that still screech out in the world, this is good. This is no waste. I think that's how we apply it. We look at the areas of our lives, we evaluate what we're, why we're pursuing what we're pursuing, and maybe the same pursuit continues, but we go about our life looking to God and asking for His joy in it all. As the band comes, we're going to close by receiving communion today. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.